like to welcome everybody here. We have several visitors. We're especially glad that you're with us. Invite you to come back. As Brian or Charles mentioned, it's going to be a two-parter, and it's a little different than what we normally hear. There's not going to be a lot of scriptures this morning, uh, but it will provide the basis, I think, for the next couple of years. There's some things I would like to bring up, and we're going to refer back to it. When I was a child, I remember someone speaking on the history of the church. I don't remember who did it. don't remember how old I was. But history in general fascinates me, and it's not just a matter of telling good stories. History is there for a purpose, and there's a reason to go back and look at history. A couple of different people have these, a quote or something like this. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. The Bible itself tells us this, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. God's told us we need to look at the past so that we can learn from it. And I'd like to spend some time this morning and this evening talking about, I don't know if you call it the secular history of the church, but kind of the, the development of the church from the time we read about it in the book of Acts up until more modern times, not modern in the last few years, but, but up until the turn of the century or so. Because it gives us a basis for kind of human, what human nature is, what we can look back and see where mistakes were made, and how we can try to avoid those uh, in the future. I'll thank Doug McDonough for giving me the book. I've read it in years past, but didn't have a copy. Mainly it's based on a book called The Eternal Kingdom. It was written in the late 50s, revised in the early 60s. Uh, by F.W. Maddox. He was president of LCU and a professor at several different uh, universities before that. Here's what I always like to keep in mind when talking about history and, and reading the Bible as far as that goes. The people that we read about in history were normal people, just like us. They weren't superheroes. They weren't superhuman. They were people living their lives day by day. They raised their kids. They had money problems, they had struggles, they had all the things that we experience. Uh, we're not unique in history. We're just like everybody else in that sense. And so when we read about the mistakes that people made or the things that they turned around and did really right, they were people just like us. And it's incumbent on us to recognize that and not repeat the mistakes of the past and look for the ways that people in the past did things that that uh, please God. I hope to over the next few years, and, and Van kind of touched on one a few weeks ago, talk about some of the ways we've seen the church vary from what we read about in the Bible. And, and this will be the foundation for that. I'm going to give you a brief outline. And typically, it's, it's funny, I was talking to Chastity yesterday, and she said, well, I like your sermons because you have some visuals. And I said, uh-oh, I've got two in a row that aren't going to have very many visuals. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of facts today, but hopefully you'll find it as fascinating, as interesting as I did. And, and beyond interest, recognize that each of us has a responsibility to keep the church being the New Testament church. We're going to talk about some gaps in time as we talk early about the, the foundation of the church, and we'll read some in the book of Acts, but it didn't take long, and we're going to talk in chunks of time that seem like, oh, that's just one slide or three minutes. 
but chunks of time that are a couple hundred years or 500 years at a time. And to put that in perspective for us, you know, most of us live, say, 75 or 80 years. We can't remember things of 100 years ago. And some of the changes are so gradual that we'll read about. They took two and three and 400 years, but the way those happened was a little bit at a time. And the way those happened, anybody could have fixed things as things went on. And as we think about what we do personally, as we think about what the church does, uh, try to keep that in mind uh, so it doesn't just become kind of a summary of things that don't really pertain to me because it pertains to all of us. So it wasn't long until people were fussing and fighting 60, 70 years. For a couple of hundred years, it resembled the New Testament church, but it changed. Starting in the 300s, which seems like a long time ago, there was an increase in error. Things just gradually crept into the church, just like the Bible warned us. And for about 500 years, from the 700s up until what we call the, the end of the Dark Ages, the church became about political power and centered on the power of one person, the Pope. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And, and as a disclaimer, my goal in this is not to, to disparage anybody. We'll mention some names of different denominations in a historical sense, that's all. And if we put ourselves in the shoes of some of these folks, I may or may not say that at the time, a lot of them that we tend to associate with, man, what were they doing and look at what it's evolved into now, they had good intentions at the time. And so it's hard to go back six, seven hundred, eight hundred years and say, Boy, they did it all wrong. A lot of them had good intentions trying to get back to the Bible way. They just didn't go all the way, or they were a victim of their circumstances in some sense. Starting in the, the late 1200s, early 1300s, the rumblings of change started happening. And it wasn't sudden, it was gradual over, a, again, a two to three hundred year period. The Protestant Reformation began shortly after that, and, and the, the defining event of that was Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the, to the church door. And we'll talk a little bit about that, and it sparked off changes across the Christian world at that time, and really is the foundation for a lot of things that we know, the things that we see when we look around us. Starting in about 1800, some folks realized that, hey, Reforming what was so bad over the last 12 or 1300 years and it evolved into something that didn't even resemble the church That's not the right way to go at it and and you've heard From this pulpit a lot of times that our goal here is to restore the New Testament church We believe that the Bible is infallible. It's the will of God And we're not the first ones to ever think that My goal is not to put these people that we'll read about and talk about on a pedestal. They were people just like we are but you started seeing signs that people wanted to go back to the original source of what's truth, which is the Bible. And they measured what they were doing, what had been reforming around them, what they were all parts of, and said, hey, this isn't near close enough to the Bible that we want it to be. And they went back to the Bible, and we'll talk about that movement. Um, and it, last, it started about the year 1800. It wasn't solely in the United States. It was in Europe as well. The Protestant Reformation was mainly in Europe a little bit uh, influenced the United States after that. So we know the establishment of the church. We've read that a lot. We know that it was prophesied about back in the book of Daniel. 
In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. So we're going to talk about some pretty dark times for the church, but we know the church has always existed. We know that it cannot be destroyed by people, although for hundreds of years they did a really good job trying. The kingdom will not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And we know that's a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. And we'll see the same battles we read about in the, we read about in the New Testament happen to the church in the beginning of time. They became physical. They turned the church into a physical organization, and that, that led to its downfall. In Acts 2, verse 47, the last part of that verse, we read about the church having been established. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. All the teaching, all the prophecy for thousands of years since the Garden of Eden had been fulfilled. Jesus had come and died. He had blessed the world, not just the Jewish nation or just Adam's family. And everybody had access to the saving power of the church. Some reasons why the church took off. Not just God's providence and his plan, but there were things historically in place that made it thrive. We think about our life and our country and our station in time as being very modern, being very proactive, and how could it be any more modern than this? And, and I suppose every generation, every society has thought that way, but for the time, that's how Rome was. They were at the, the time the church was founded, there was relative peace. They had conquered and nobody wanted to go up against Rome, so there wasn't a lot of wars going on. They had good roads, and actually you can go, I've not myself been, maybe some of you have, you can go to Europe and you can actually see remnants of roads that were built during the Roman Empire. That's how good the roads were. They had a language that everybody understood. It wasn't any more tribal languages, but a way that people could communicate and a lot of people could understand. Commerce was well-developed. So it wasn't a tribal, rural country anymore. It was an environment that, that lent itself well to big cities like Ephesus, Corinth, places where the Bible could be taught and spread. At the same time, the social order lent itself well to the church growing and thriving. We're used to a middle-class middle country. Pretty much everybody we know is the same. You've got some that have more, some that have less, but we all go to jobs, we all struggle with finances we all work most of our lives but that wasn't the case in society there the biggest portion of people were slaves they had no hope that's what they did all their lives they were born into it they died doing it there was very little chance to be upwardly mobile you were stuck wherever you found yourself there was a huge economic disparity the difference between the rich and the poor uh, was not living on one side of town versus living on the other side of town. It was first having enough to eat and not having enough to eat. Or people that had slaves and servants and all the, the fine things of life and people that didn't have enough to eat. So huge ranges. And by and large, the population was illiterate. They could talk, but they couldn't read. There was no books like we think about it. So people that were poor, people really had no hope. And that's kind of the way society was in the, in the beginning of the church. The moral conditions. We've read in Romans 1 many, many times how depraved uh, sexual immorality was. It was rampant. It was propagated by the religions of the time. 
there was a general disregard for human life. And how I like to think about that, to put it in context, we think, man, people, how could they ever, how could abortion ever be legalized in this country? Well, not only was abortion legal there and commonly practiced, babies that were born with deformities, sometimes the females that were born they didn't want, they killed them. That was common. It wasn't some strange thing. People didn't go to jail for it. It was common because life was so hard they couldn't support it. That became the standard of living. We, we've seen them or read about it in school, gladiator games where they fought to the death and where instead of going to the stadium and watching football games or baseball or going and watching basketball where we think it's rough and those are really bad guys, they killed each other. And it wasn't in secret, it was with thousands of people watching and cheering. That was the value of human life. Nothing compared to what we're, we're, we expect. Uh, there was frequent divorce. Most of the marriages were arranged. Uh, Many times it was old, old men with very young girls, and there were civil contracts as much as anything, and so a lot of times people would divorce six and eight times as they kind of made their way around uh, trying to better themselves. Nothing at all socially uh, like what we expect and what we experience. And suicide was really seen as a positive way out of a terrible life. That was the value of human life at the time. So think about it. Uh, religions, there really were none. There were superstitions that offered no hope. We read about them in school with Greek and Roman gods where there were gods of this and gods of that and all the superstitions and celebrations, immorality that went with those. There were the Jews and all the different factions that we read about in the Bible and some that we don't. Uh, but generally, the Jewish religion by this time, as we've read lots of times, had lost its value. They were so caught up in tradition and power grabbing that Jews uh, really were just a political faction. They weren't a really religious faction. And we've, we read about the Sadducees and Pharisees. Uh, we read about some of the apostles having been zealots. And they all were different factions of Jews uh, that were involved in, in physical things, trying to take back over the country uh, so the Jews could have a land. So you see the stage that sat, that set for a religion that offered hope. Think about the hope that we have in Jesus. It's not about physical things, it's about spiritual things. So in, the, in a world where the poor are really poor, and there was no family, there was rampant suicide, the value of life was very, very low in every other sense, Christianity spread rapidly. A God that offered hope and love and grace with a very simple, understandable worship. A way that we could worship our God that was spelled out very clearly, easy to do with, really didn't need anything, just needed people and a Bible, right? With the plurality of local leaders, people that valued the Bible and understood what it needed for a local congregation to work. All the members were involved. It wasn't a spectator sport. It was what we read in the Bible, what we can go back in the book of Acts and read about how the Christians and how the church was. It took off and grew rapidly. We read about 3,000 being saved in one day, and it was like that across uh, the places they went. But it didn't take long. Think about Jesus. He died in 
calendars can get a little iffy to get real specific, but 33 A.D., uh, the book of Acts was written in about 60 A.D. So within 50 or 60 years after the things that we read, things had started to change. And it wasn't surprising because what did, what were the uh, elders that warned about in Acts 20 verse 28? Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. And I don't think this was prophecy. This was the elders being instructed about human nature, right? That there's always people, there's always the chance that outside influences are going to affect the church. Or inside influences are going to affect the church. And he said, those that are elders, be ready for that. Look for that. And so by the year 110, just 50 years later, you can start reading about it. And I'm not going to go quote all the different sources. I encourage you to get the book or borrow it if you want to. But there are hundreds of writings and a lot of documentation about this all having happened. Researched out like you would think about a history book being researched. So we're going to assume all that's true and give you a lot of things without uh, footnotes and endnotes. But it is expected. Second Thessalonians, Paul warned the Thessalonians, the coming of the lawless, lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception. We're going to see that at work. We're going to see that happening in the church. And I guess where I want you to think about this as we're talking about it, we think things are really good. And probably in my lifetime, they're as good in the church as I've ever seen them. But I'm guessing at about the year 80, you know what those folks thought? We're taking over the world. It's not just a few baptized in there. We're baptizing thousands of people. Things are going really, really good. And 30 years later, 40 years later, guess what was happening? Things are starting to fall away. And so as we think about that, whatever your age, if you're young or if you're old, think about the importance of maintaining a root and a foundation of biblical principles. And when it varies off of that, the things that we read about in the book of Thessalonians, the book of Acts, we're susceptible to those things. And it never happens. It's not like we're going to leave here this morning and this afternoon or this evening, somebody's going to come back and preach something that's completely wrong or next week, or the week after that, or maybe even three years down the road, or ten years down the road. We talk about things that happen 40 and 50 and 70 and 100 years down the road. And the way that happens is good people sit by and let it happen a little at a time. And so that's the thing I want you to think about uh, as you think about what your responsibility is, what my responsibility is in our own point in time in history. Starting about the year 110, you can find in history a lot of uninspired writings. People that were elders in the church, people that were students of the Bible, defending biblical practice, much like you would now. A lot of them are what we call the apostolic fathers. They're not a special breed of people or a special class of people. They're referred to in history because they had a direct influence. They knew or were directly influenced by the apostles. 
You know, think about the people you knew 50 or 60 years ago in your lifetime. So I don't know who the oldest one here. I'll pick on Gerald. He's not the oldest one here, but he's 70s. So when he was a boy, 15 years old, 60 years ago, he knew a lot of people that really influenced the church that I may have had a recollection of, but my kids have no idea who they are. They probably even heard their names. These folks had worked directly with the apostles. So they were, if you want to call it, they were one generation removed from the inspired people that were working. So they tried to maintain, and here's some names you might read about, and some of the things that you can find writings that they wrote about. Clement of Rome talked about a plurality of elders who were equivalent to bishops. And we'll talk about that because that's going to become a real big falling away where bishops somehow take a place higher than elders, even though in the Bible we read about them being synonymous. Ignatius of Antioch. And so you'll see some things that, uh, that start to veer away by these uninspired writings as well. Here's some of the quotes from his works. Follow the bishop as Jesus Christ. The presbytery as the apostles and respect the deacons. Let no man perform anything pertaining to the church without the bishop. So you start seeing the, the idea that there is someone on earth who's as important as Jesus. And that's within a 50 to a couple hundred years after uh, the Bible was written, after Jesus died. In the year 150, you read about, in history, the first time baptism was referenced as anything but immersion. So we know the word baptism is a word that comes straight out of the Greek. It means to immerse. And for whatever reason, we'll talk about some of those, uh, it began to be something besides what it originally was. You'll read things from elders. at these. We read about Phrygia and Smyrna in the Bible. And in history, you can read about some of the elders there having writings, defending, in some cases, what was not happening or needed to happen in the church and sometimes promoting ideas that weren't according to the Bible. But that happened over a 200-year period, a long time ago. You see the word apologist, and we talk about uh, apologetics nowadays. That really is just a basic definition of someone who tries to defend the Bible using reason and logic. And here's some of the names. Quadratus, Aristides, Justin Martyr, Melito, Marcion. And again, as people are, some upheld biblical truths and some didn't. Some started to vary. But again, now we're 150 years away from the original writings. Gnosticism, which I think we all fall trapped to, and it's easy to fall into that. Legalism starting to try and be real nitpicky on what's right and what's wrong, and trusting in human reasoning and logical arguments. The Bible's instructed us to be logical and be able to prove things, but when we get so wrapped up in trying to uh, defend my way and my attitudes and my reasons, uh, it's easy to get caught up in human logic and be drawn away with theoretical what-ifs. You know, we've all give you an example. Well, what if... Somebody was walking out in the aisle to get baptized and they had a heart attack and died. Those types of arguments generally don't go anywhere, but that's what that Gnosticism and legalism tends to get us drawn down a road of things that really draw us away from the real truth. And that's what you read a lot of, a lot of these folks. 
You read from people that were worried about the factions that were developing, how the church was splitting. Think about in your lifetime, the church splitting, not maybe so much while I was alive, but in the 50s and 60s, those of you that were alive then, you can think of countless instances about people being worried about growing factions. You read about defending and encouraging those that were in prison because, as we'll talk about in a minute, there was a lot of persecution going on. Not constant, not in every place all the time, but a, an amount of it that we in our minds think, oh, sometimes things are really hard for us, but where people were physically in fear for their life and their possessions on a regular basis. Not just being called names, not just maybe being a social outcast, but actually being physically hurt. So some other names. And here's the general tendency is it, got further and further down the road, all tended towards philosophy, logical human reasoning, and pushing their own ideas. And what's interesting to me about history, we could talk about all these things, change the names, and it would be modern history, right? Because people are people. That's the truth about the Bible, and that's the truth about history, is that people tend to be people, and what we always have to be on guard on is we don't let... The people part of us take over, but we always go back to the Bible and let that guide and be the rule for our lives and for the way the church runs. So during that same time, there was persecution. It wasn't constant. During some of these folks, there was periods of time where there wasn't persecution. Uh, we all read about at the end of Nero's reign that Rome burned and the Christians got the blame because somebody had to be blamed and that kind of kicked off some persecution You'll read in history about Domitian and Trajan where persecution was terrible. Uh, then there's a period of time for 20 years there wasn't persecution. And so you can see the, the pendulum that the church was on. Fear and relative prosperity. And it flipped back and forth. Towards the end of the 200s, there's about a 50-year period. And so think about 50 years. I don't remember 50 years ago. So for some of these people, their whole life, there had never been real persecution. But again, there's some people here that do remember 50 years ago. And so they remember persecution, and they really thrived in the period of no persecution because they realized, here's a window of time where we need to do the work. Because guess what? It's likely it's going to happen again. None of us physically know that, what persecution is like. And you can't live in fear that persecution is going to happen. But likely, according to history... It's not going to be Supreme Court justices, and it's not going to be laws that, that make it inconvenient for us. The, the types of persecution that happened there were, were real physical things where people got killed and people got hurt and people got imprisoned. An estimate was that about 10% of Christians at any given time were in danger of death. So think about that. We hear stories from the folks come back from India that, oh, there's one of the brothers that got beat up uh, a couple of times I've heard that story. Very, I don't know that in my lifetime I've ever heard about a Christian that we know of. You'll, read about it, you'll hear about it in the news in China or some other foreign countries where Christians are actually killed. But think about what 10% means. And I'm sure it wasn't 10% of a single building, but 10% of the, the Christians worldwide at the time. But think about what 10% is. There's probably 300 people here this morning. So, if you were to take about one person on each seat, 
out of this congregation, that's who was in fear of death to come to church or to worship the way they saw according to the Bible. So it was very, very real. It wasn't something in a far-off land. It was something that everybody uh, lived with day in and day out. It was about the year 325. You've heard the, the Emperor Constantine, and we'll talk some more about him, that he made an edict in Milan, Italy, that outlawed persecuting Christians. So about the year 325, it, it ended uh, for the most part. And what we'll find is sometimes prosperity causes bigger problems. And that's what's going to happen. But it didn't happen instantly. It's going to happen over a period of years. There began a process in, when the peace started that there was a process of identifying inspired and uninspired works. You'll hear about the canon. Um, that's what's considered by theologians the inspired work, uh, writings of God. It's where we get the Bible. And so those works started as early as the 300s, trying to figure out what belongs and what doesn't belong. And you see more and more the departure from the New Testament pattern. And here's the biggies. There was a continued move towards a hierarchy and a monarchical bishop. And what that means is layers upon layers of people that were in authority and a monarch, we think about it historically as a king, someone who was the guy or the person that made all the rules. That's what was happening socially when you think about the Caesars, when you think about all the kings of England and the kings of Europe. And that began to creep into the church. People go all the way back to the book of Samuel. We want to be like everybody else around us. Give us a king. And that pattern, as God warned Thousands of years ago, you see it creeping in again. A lead or head elder moved into a position of authority called the bishop. Bishops of larger towns began to exert authority on smaller towns. And you see that kind of thing develop. <clears throat> Even prior to the year 200, one of the bishops at Rome claimed to be the universal bishop. So just a hundred years after the book of Revelation was written, in about the year 90. So a hundred years isn't just another day down the road. Think about a hundred years ago in our time. But it didn't take long in the scope of history <clears throat> for that to happen. They traced their lineage to the apostles, trying to go back and develop authority for themselves because they knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who worked directly with the apostles. And you see that even today. The development of a priesthood where there was a different class of people, people that had a direct line to God. You read about teachings of millennialism where there was going to be an earthly establishment of the kingdom. You begin to read about original sin, people being born with sin and infant baptism for the first times. You read about celibacy of the, of the priesthood and popes and those in their hierarchy not getting married. You read about the Easter celebration for the very first time. All in this time frame, you start seeing it creep in. Constantine, who was one of four leaders, they had tetrarchs, they called them, I think, uh, in 292. By about 20 years later, he was the only guy. They'd either died or he had conquered them. And he attributed his results to God. He wasn't a Christian, 
but he began to see the political value of Christianity. He made it the state religion. Think about in our history. Well, if we could just get Christianity to run the country, wouldn't life be good? Well, we're going to see in some cases in history, it really became the worst of the worst. Um, but he saw the political value, made it the state religion. The Nicene Council that we talked about, he called himself the Bishop of Bishops, even though he was not really oriented with the church at, uh, for most of his life. He banned non-Christian worship and an elaborate building program. And so if you go back in history, you can see huge palaces and, and the ruins of things that got built in. How could it be any better? It went from persecution and 10% being in fear of their lives at any given time to now it's the state religion. It's authorized by the state, protected by the state, and even promoted by the state. So over a period of several hundred years, uh, you'll see several things happen. And I'm going to cruise through these pretty fast. I'll make it available if you wanna, want, want the PowerPoint later. Uh, I cut things as short as I could, and I don't want to run, run too long. Uh, 380, one of, the, uh, popes one of the bishops of Rome recognized actually as the pope. Now you can read some rewritten history from the Catholic Church now that popes existed from Peter, uh, but really you don't read about it in literature until three or four hundred years after the church that we read about in the Bible. They had all sorts of councils, again, that were continuing to exalt the bishop of Rome. Tried to exert power over bishops in Africa. Northern Africa was a big part of the church back then. And they revolt and say, hey, you can't do that. 440, when you actually read it in history, Leo becomes the first pope. Again, more advocation by whoever's in power, they want more, right? And that's what happened. The, the person in power gave themselves more and more power. They got councils together. But again, it's 100 years later to reaffirm that they've got the power. By 541, the priest, the person at the, what was the local church, became God's representative, representative on earth. People couldn't go to God. They had to go through the priest. They had what are called ecumenical councils. It was a, over a period of these 450 or 500 years, they met together of what can we... What rules can we jockey with and what things can we come up with so people can get along? It wasn't about going back to the Bible. It was developing policies and creeds that would try to unite people. Here's, I guess, the biggest thing that was going on during that time. The development of an episcopacy. And I don't say that word very well, but basically that's the hierarchy of priests and all the people between him and the Pope. What we're going to read as we... Uh, go to the next era is that allowed the church to exercise power and really complete power and authority over the average person so it went from back in you think about Rome where the people were hopeless they were controlled by a government or their status in life and had no hope and you're going to see the church turn into that same machine that it didn't give people hope it became corrupt and just another political power The word Catholic is lowercase, it changes to uppercase. So the universal church, that's what the word Catholic means, that we talk about in a lowercase sense, turned into the Catholic church as a denomination with an uppercase C as we know it today in some sense. 
became a world power. Baptism, a simple act of obedience used for remission of sins in the Bible, turned into an elaborate ceremony by this time. People were dressed in fine robes and paraded through the streets. The Lord's Supper changed from a memorial, a simple remembrance of Christ's sacrifice, and it almost flipped completely around during this period of time that now it was an offering and a sacrifice we were giving back to God. And it started the idea of sacraments, that there were things people did to appease God as opposed to the way they were set up in the Bible. The practices of confirmation where people reached a certain age and were made official members of the church came into place. Penance where you had to ask for forgiveness and do some act to prove you really uh, had been penitent came into being. Instrumental music and special singers, you start reading about them in this time frame. Monasteries came into being. A monastery where unmarried priests go and live in communal style as a general definition. But there were many, many of them. And, you know, we, we read about it and think it's a real modern day problem of all of the sexual immorality uh, with Catholic priests. And we've read about it and heard about it, you know, for the last 30 years and how far it went back into our lifetime. Well, it was happening in the three, four hundreds because people had varied from the biblical pattern. And it got to be a bigger and bigger machine. The will of man and inherited sin, that people are born into sin, became a doctrine. The Catholic Church controlled every aspect of the teaching. The only teacher was the priest. Nobody else could teach. And not only that, they got decided what really mattered. What was authoritative? And they were, in the end, a pawn of the hierarchy above them. They became an army that the Pope could use to spread his desires and his wishes uh, with great control over the people that, that he was the priest for. In addition to that, they held the power of salvation and the ability to forgive sins. We know that's not true, but over several hundred years, that's what happened when too much power got concentrated in one person. A gradual thing. You had to have a priest to get the grace of God. That's where it got to. So they set up this hierarchy. There was a parish priest, which you might think about a local congregation. That was the person that was there day in, day out. But they had somebody that was over several of those. Called a dean. Never heard of those. And some of these offices are still in existence. Some aren't. A vicar, I remember reading about or hearing about a vicar when we were watching Robin Hood, I think. So you'll, think of, you'll have heard some of these names, but it was a hierarchy set up with absolute authority to make sure that when it finally got to the top of the pyramid, the Pope's will got passed on and somebody was responsible for making the person under them do what he said, for lack of a better short explanation of it all. And so there's some more details about that. Uh, you'll be familiar with the word archbishop now. So a bishop uh, is in charge of a diocese. I, I went and looked it up. There's a diocese in Amarillo and a diocese in Lubbock with about 50 or 60 congregations. A bishop uh, would be in charge of that. An archbishop uh, is a step above. Lubbock and Amarillo are in the San Antonio diocese. So there's an archbishop that's in charge of that, making sure it all happens. Uh, there's a papal legate, which is a direct... Uh, appointee by the Pope to make sure what he says goes. 
finally at the very top. It's called an elective monarch. In, in my lifetime, it's happened a couple times. A group of people, higher-ups, get together and vote on a new pope. And all of a sudden, he becomes the monarch, the sole ruler, God on earth. And that happened over a 500-year period. It's like, how does it go from something like what we experience? The church is organized, kind of like what we try to do. And now, 500 years later, it's nothing like that at all. And that's not saying there weren't pockets that remained. But by and large, it was something completely different than what the Bible said. At the, in the meantime... We, we think Islam and that religion is a, a very modern thing. About the year 570, Muhammad was born in Saudi Arabia, modern-day Saudi Arabia. He was orphaned, raised by a wealthy uncle, married a wealthy widow who was 15, 20 years older than him when he was 25, and began to develop through what he called visions. He was an eloquent speaker and... When he was 30 to 50, he was persecuted because they thought he was crazy. By the time he was 50, he was converting towns. Uh, by the time he was 60, just 10 years later, they were killing people who wouldn't convert to Islam. That's the great power and the great influence that he had. The Arabs accepted it and ran with it uh, for a lot of reasons. Very physical, a lot of ideas out of the Old Testament. It gained momentum it became very, just like you'll read, we'll read later, very economically and politically driven, a lot more than religiously driven. Uh, in the end, it got to where those that would not accept it were allowed to, to live as long as they paid taxes. And if you would convert, though, you didn't have to pay taxes anymore. So it developed its own system of conversion. Uh, just 25 years later, it controlled most of northern Africa, Egypt, and went up Palestine, Persia, and Syria. The things that we read about in the news today. That's where its foothold was by the year 650. So, thousand, you know, what's that, 1,400 years ago, more or less. Uh, it moved into Europe uh, within 100 years of that. And so what's developing is this two political systems, the Christian religion, the Islam religion, that are both very physical and as we move into the next stage, papal power growing. Christianity became the state religion across all of Europe. Secular rulers recognized the papacy uh, as Rome went and conquered all of these different countries. It concentrated more and more power in the Pope. And still what's going on a thousand years later, the average person couldn't read. They didn't have access to the truth. They didn't have access to the Bible. Even the low-level priests couldn't read. They just did what they were told. But what happened, now Islam is coming into Europe and it starts invading the European powers. The Pope got more power to fight them. We've got to fight them and keep them away. Back to the physical idea. And you saw this. We hear the word quid pro quo, but that's kind of what developed between the Pope and the secular kings. The Pope would give his spiritual blessing to the king so that all of the people that were under his authority would recognize the king. The king would provide an army for the pope and it became so intermixed and so worldly that uh, it really became another government they used all sorts of crazy ways to prove that a pope was the representative of god on earth again the quid pro quo and the two main things they used excommunication i've heard that before but excommunication 
wasn't just getting kicked out of a church. That's what we'll think about it today. Well, you can't come here anymore. But what the people really believed, because think they didn't have the Bible. They were illiterate. They had been controlled not for 15 years or 20 years, but many, many generations. If you were young, hundreds of years by this time. We're in the 800s to 1200s. And they really believed this priest was their access to salvation. And so when you got excommunicated, you were banned to hell. And you had no hope again. And not only that, because it was so widespread, you were a social outcast. So basically it ruined your life if you were excommunicated. You had no hope. So they used that to exert more and more power on people and to put their will across on the people. This word called interdiction, it was kind of the opposite way. Excommunication was the church on its subjects, so to speak. Interdiction was the way they manipulated the, the social government, the secular government. They would say, hey, we're going to tell our people not to recognize you as king if you don't do what we say. And because everybody was afraid to get kicked out of the Catholic Church, they went along with what they said. And so now they've got the kings doing what they want because they can pull all the people and, and cause uh, uprisings, force the secular leaders to give in to them. So over this 600-year period, there were strong popes, there were weak popes, and you'll see a sway and a leveling off and a rise in falling away uh, and a huge tug of war with the secular leaders in Europe. And if you go back and read history, you'll see all sorts of things uh, that were going on. The Crusades started. The Crusades, we think our ventures into Saudi Arabia and the Middle East are something new. The Crusades started in about the year 1000, lasted for a couple hundred years. It was almost constant war where the Catholic Church, physically speaking, was sending armies over to the Middle East to reconquer and recapture Jerusalem so that Christians could have access to it because by this time the Muslims had it all and they couldn't get there. So it became very, very physical. It led to more and more falling away. But in the same time, there was opposition. There was always somebody wanting to go back to the Bible. Think about Matthew 20 and 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be among you. It seemed so simple to us, but over a period of 1,000, 1,200 years, it went away. There were always factions trying to battle the Roman Pope. Even up into the year 700, you've heard of the Greek Orthodox Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church. They actually split years and years ago over the power that was given to the Roman Pope. Now, they developed their own system of hierarchy, but there was always opposition. Uh, the main thing the church had is if you didn't agree with them, you were labeled a heretic, and as it came to pass, now they control the, the secular leaders. So I label you a heretic, and I give you to the king who beheads you. So now this power grows and grows. The Inquisition is probably the most famous instance you remember of that. They used religious courts to convict people of heresy and then turned them over to the local people to kill them or to torture them. So what you see in history, it looks like a pretty dark time as we're ending this morning. The church had completely, as a whole, turned its back on what the Bible says, the New Testament. 
it had gradually, over a thousand years, turned into something that didn't resemble the New Testament church at all. The hierarchy enriched and empowered a ruling class, the priests and all the hierarchy, as well as the secular government. And that's what its main tool was. It kept the masses illiterate and in fear, in fear of their souls and in physical fear of their lives. It physically persecuted, you know, it's, it's strange. As we started this morning, we were talking about the Romans persecuting the Christians, and now it's the Christian church persecuting those who wouldn't do what it said, even though it wasn't what was in the Bible. And again, it's not to get the idea that there weren't maybe faithful people here and there, but by and large, that was society. Not the persecution or the, or the things we get afraid of with our government, but things that were way, way worse than that. It literally and figuratively created what's known as the Dark Ages. When you think about darkness, no hope, no way out, and that was the environment uh, that we're setting the stage for as things change, because there is light. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here, right? There's light at the end of the tunnel, and we're going to find the resemblance or the semblance of people saying, this is crazy, let's go back to the Bible. So hopefully... You've gotten a taste of it this morning. Hopefully, the lack of visuals hasn't made it too uninteresting. Um, hopefully, you'll come back tonight and you'll hear, how does it turn for the better and what goes on and what's the thought press process for that? Because again, as we think about why we're, I wanted to do this this morning, we can't repeat the mistakes of the past. We want to be reminded of those periodically so that we can, going into the future, keep ourselves, our kids, our grandkids going back to the Bible. And that's what we're going to see happening uh, from the year 1500 on, the semblance of turning back to the Bible. We're glad that you're here this morning, and if you have been taught uh, previously, would like to be baptized, we always want to make that option available, that opportunity available. We'd like you to come forward and be baptized this morning if you'd like to do that. If there's anyone here who needs prayers for any other reason, we'd be glad to assist you with that as well. Please come while we stand and sing.